This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's head down virtually to Mexico and talk about something that's going on there. It is about the pandemic and about COVID. It's also about politics and one of the biggest companies in the world and certainly an incredibly important company in Mexico. Amy Stillman is Mexico energy reporter for Bloomberg. Her story in Business Week, how AMLO's crown jewel became the world's deadliest COVID company. She joins us from Mexico City. Joel Weber joins us from Massachusetts. Joel, this is fascinating and troubling. Yeah, that's right. Um, And one that Amy's been uh, covering for a while. And, you know, when she first kind of brought it to our attention, um, she said, look, there's been a lot of deaths at um, Pemex, COVID deaths. Um, and then that those numbers just kept going higher. And we, we now know that um, more employees at Pemex have died than at any other company in the world. Um, and the root of that problem is really the oil platforms, which have um, been sort of ground zero for uh, for a lot of the infections. Um, so, Amy, um, you've been obviously close to this story uh, for weeks now. Why were the platforms so bad, and, and where has it gone from there? Yeah, thank you, Joel, and, and thank you, Jason and Carol. Um, so this story certainly was, uh, you know, it, it's a complicated one, and, and I don't want to, um, you know, pin it all down to one thing, but certainly the platforms we're seeing were the locus of infection. One of the reasons is that these are, um, you know, spaces which are very small, um, where you have like between 200 and 300 workers that all sleep together, eat together. Um, you know, they eat together in like, uh, you know, dining rooms of about 100 people. They're unventilated. They sleep, they sleep in bedrooms of four, which are like roughly, um, you know, 150 um, feet uh, big. So essentially these people are really sort of like squished in together. And, you know, the thing is that um, Mexico had its first COVID cases reported at the end of February, but in March and April, Pemex was still operating its platforms at full capacity. According to the workers that I spoke with for the investigation, Um, they weren't implementing sufficient uh, sanitation measures And perhaps most importantly, um, you know, they weren't disembarking vulnerable workers. So you have a a very big population of people um, within Pemex that have problems like obesity, diabetes, Mm. hypertension. And and these people were still going on the platform. Yeah, it's tragic. Uh, And it was, you know, those platforms essentially a Petri dish in terms of COVID-19. So it's a virus story, but it's also a political story because Pemex is, as you write in your reporting, uh, Amy, it's, you know, a key source of government revenue. It's also been a key part of the Mexican president, uh, known as AMLO uh, for short, you know, as a way of kind of reversing what's been going on in that country in terms of economic policy. So it's kind of in this weird place. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that's very important to highlight. Whereas, you know, other oil companies are beholden to their shareholders. In the case of Pemex, it's very much beholden to the Mexican government. And so much of what, you know, Pemex's policies around COVID, um, you know, have, have really mirrored what we've seen in Mexico as a whole, which is to say, you know, a situation where um, the economy is being put forward, you know, above um, some of the safety of people. Because this is really a country that, you know, people... Um, you know, they, they sort of work, um, you know, in the informal sector, and it's very hard for people to stay home. And essentially, Mexico has seen a huge number of, of deaths, um, generally speaking. And, and in, in Pemex, it really hasn't been any different. Um, the other thing that's really important to mention here, um, you know, is that the hospitals, hospital system in Mexico is, is really in poor shape. And so a lot of these people are going to the hospitals and they're not getting sufficient care. Um, so that... Well, and Pemex has its own health care system, right, too, Pemex? Yeah, that's correct. So Pemex has um, a health care system that incorporates about 750,000 people. That's not just Pemex workers, but retirees and also their family members. And I'm just Go curious, ahead, Amy, like when, when the... Um, how much have the... The, the the hospitals really the health centers that are basically for employees and their families any sense of uh, of if those areas have become hot spots just by the sheer number of people mm. that the that have overwhelmed the system yeah for sure so so the Pemex hospitals there's about 24 Pemex hospitals and clinics around the country they're very dispersed much like the company's own you know installations and refineries, petrochemical plants, et cetera. And so, you know, you have people that are going to these hospitals um, all over the country, and, you know, they've definitely become, uh, you know, they, they've contributed to the outbreaks. Um, you know, the other thing is that the platform workers sort of, you know, they also travel from all over the country. So you're seeing, like, the, you know, the concentration of, um, of outbreaks in the hospitals, on the platforms, and then that's also spreading across, across the country more widely. So that also has a, a reverberation. So talk to us uh, about the refinery side of this, because the platforms, as you say, are, are one piece of it. I mean, this is such a, as you pointed out rightly, Amy, a complicated story because of all the tentacles of this company. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the refineries and the petrochemical facilities, um, of which there are many, um, and they make up the bulk of Pemex's um, employee base, have had sort of mixed uh, mixed results. Some of the refineries and petrochemical plants have been implementing good sanitation measures since since sort of mid March, but then others like Salina Cruz Refinery, which is which is the biggest in Mexico, or the Cataraza Refinery, which is in the northern part of the country, there workers have told me that um, the sanitation measures aren't being implemented, that they're not getting. Um, face masks, that they're still going to work when they're vulnerable workers. Um, so there's still a lot of um, a lot of problems in the way the policy has been implemented. Right. I think it's also important, important to highlight that, um, you know, a lot of workers are unhappy with the union, the official Pemex union, because they say that it hasn't really been fighting their, their cause. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a terrific piece of reporting. Congratulations. Uh, a deep investigation for sure into Pemex, the politics and the pandem- pandemic. Excuse me. You can read that story on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg 
Com. Carol? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? And just, you know, workers who still feel like, you know, they've got to get to work and then they're in condition, you know, conditions, you know, what's interesting, they break it down to about, you know, office workers, there's yeah. space, but, and then depending on your position out on the platform also impacts kind of the living conditions that you have on that platform. Absolutely. Our thanks to Amy Stillman, the writer in Mexico City, and Joel Weber, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, it was the story, the headline that stopped Wall Street in its tracks this morning. I actually gasped, I have to say, when I saw this uh, across my Bloomberg terminal. It's huge news. Citigroup picking Jane Fraser as its next CEO. As you just heard Charlie say, the first woman atop any major global bank. She will succeed Mike Corbett. He's retiring in February after more than eight years in the top job. And man, what an eight years it has been when you think back to 2012 and what was going on in the rebuilding of Wall Street and that bank. Uh, She was named the company's president last year. She will join the board immediately. We're going to hear from Jenny Serene in just a second. She's been covering that story for Bloomberg. It's the most read. But we want to hear from Jane Fraser herself. Back in June, she spoke with Bloomberg's Shanali Basik on the gender pay gap on Wall Street. Check it out. We call it the ugly truth. Um, uh, Women are paid 73% the median of what men are because we just don't have enough women in the higher paying and the more senior roles. That is even more true in our um, in our black population. Um, and it's true in different parts of the world with different populations. Um, but I think the piece now is to begin moving away from the ills of the past um, and behaviors of the past and start converging on a positive vision for the future. All right, that is Jane Fraser, uh, of course, now the new CEO of Citigroup. Uh, she's speaking there with our Shanali Basak. Uh, they spoke back in June, uh, and they were talking, as you can see, or just heard about gender pay gap on Wall Street. Let's get into this story because it is the most read. And uh, we now have the first woman atop a major, any major global bank. So let's get into it. Jenny Serene, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone uh, on this Thursday. So Jenny... This is a big deal. Definitely. Yeah, it'll be um, it'll be super interesting to kind of see, you know, already to see how it's been received. You know, you've had other CEOs like Goldman Sachs' David Solomon came out this morning congratulating Jane and also congratulating Mike Corbett on um, such a, you know, long, incredible tenure. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be super interesting as she kind of moves into that role and you know, right, we're in the we're in this midst of this huge crisis. Kind of how she takes the reins and and really takes charge. You know, Jenny, it's interesting. Uh, hat tip to our colleague Scarlett Fu because she uh, pointed out to us, uh, and I know that this is data that you know as well. When you look at women on Wall Street and especially at the biggest banks, um, you look at the board level, City is actually better than its peers there on that basis. Eight out of 17 members are women uh, compared with Goldman Sachs, where four out of 11, so 47% uh, for City. It shows that I think they've been thinking about this at least a little bit more seriously or at least more, um, <laughs> more apparently or measurably at the most senior levels. Is that the sense you get? You know this firm and you know Wall Street so well. Yeah, it's. I definitely think that's a fair fair way to think about it. I mean, Citigroup wasn't just the first on, on Wall Street. It was actually one of the first companies in the entire country to 
offer an unadjusted look at its pay gap between its male and female employees. And it said at the time that it was taking that step to really give people a yardstick and, and give people a way to hold them accountable to, to make sure that they tried to close that gap. And um, and they have made progress and they're, they're still making progress. So I think it's definitely been something that CEO Mike Corbett and a lot of his you know top lieutenants have thought about really intensely and, and wanted to be seen as a leader on and, and it's really not just the, the gender diversity it's, it's all sorts of diversity it's a lot of like social and environmental um uh, commitments and you know one of the things we hear a lot from them is it really helps them stand out from a talent perspective you mm-hmm. know when you're going out and trying to recruit millennial uh bankers and coders and, and uh, deal makers you know those types of talent that young talent wants to see this so that's that's kind of driving a lot of their their interest on this so not surprised it was city then jenny considering what they've been up to in terms of diversity and initiatives uh and inclusion at the at the bank i definitely think i mean i guess there's lots of other you know top female lieutenants at lots of the different banks um and i think you know um it's such a great glass ceiling to break and to, to see this news today um but and certainly city has definitely you know sought to sought to distinguish itself on yeah. this front um but still a surprise i mean it's 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 crazy that it's news but it's It's big news. It's big news for sure. Yeah, you're right. And and that, I think, was everybody's reaction is crazy that that it took this long, but good that it's happening. So she's got a big job. Uh, Mike Corbett, he had a big job when he took this job eight years ago. What is first and foremost on Jane Fraser's list as she takes the CEO role? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to think about the institution that City was when when Mike took over. You know, his main thought at that time was we have to simplify this bank, um, and they've just gone on this huge effort to really slim down, and they're really, really down to two core businesses now, their consumer bank and their institutional group. Um, and so for Jane, it's a little bit different. You know, now that they've kind of gotten it to maybe the size that they, they want it to be, She's got to be focused on profitability. She's got to be focused on catching back up with J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. You know, before they abandoned their their profitability targets earlier this year, um, Citigroup just really massively lags behind even what it's targeting from a profitability perspective. And so um, she's got a big job ahead of her, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what levers she decides to pull um, in order to achieve that. Yeah, and not surprising she comes from the consumer side, Carol. Yeah. Who's next? Is there pressure on another bank to say, you know what, we need to be out there? I think it's um, it's a great, it's a really great point and one we've been batting around for sure. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, Our we've written a lot this year about our Wall Street CEOs too big to retire. And, and you've mm-hmm. seen these CEOs be in these positions for, you know, eight, nine, ten years now. Um, and so we'll see, you know, there's always the chatter about Jamie Dimon over at J.P. Morgan. There's lots of chatter about... Ryan Moynihan over at Bank of America. And so it'll be interesting to kind of see if this forces anybody's hands or, you know, it could also have the opposite effect of kind of putting a little bit of yeah. pressure off the industry. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting point. Uh, Jenny Serene, great reporting today. It's the most read story. It's the thing everyone on Wall Street is talking about, not just a CEO changeover, but a historic one in many ways. My bet, Jamie Dimon. Will be the next one. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And they've got a great lineup too. And he's probably mad that Mike Corbett beat him to it. Damn just it. saying. Damn it, Mike. I was just like, come on. I'm just going to do that. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Only about 11 minutes to go before the close of trading. It's a market that seems to have made up its mind. It's going south today uh, after whipsawing, as we said at the top of the show. Let's get into it. J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade, joining us once again on the phone from Chicago. So where do we go from here, J.J.? Because I feel like the last four or five days, we're like, okay, we needed a correction. And then everything seemed a little better yesterday, but now we get into today. Is this just the normal course of volatility that we're going to have to get used to for a while? Yeah, I think you're putting it really well. It's just uh, us trying to find a level to sort of settle in at. Uh, you know, obviously, as you said, Jason, it's been crazy moves. The one thing I look at is the fact that the VIX just broke 30. Mm-hmm. So the VIX really didn't react much to this until about the last 30 minutes or so. So, uh, you know, I, I think people had a, some news today, and the fact that we're not really getting any COVID-19 news, which is really the overriding story, earnings season's kind of done. So any other piece of news that we pick up that can send the market uh, tumbling or flying, it does. I think the, the couple of big things is the number one being, there's not great conviction right now. There was really good conviction a couple of weeks ago, I think, that things were going to be okay, uh, we'll get back to work soon. Now I think we're in this area where people are trying to figure out, you know, you had the announcements out of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs about people getting back to work, but on the other hand, which may hurt some of the technology stocks, but on the other hand, you know, we don't see a vaccine in the near-term future. So I, I think there's just all these questions coming together at once, as well as the news today, you know, that the uh, Senate, they, they just couldn't get a deal passed. So what do you do as an investor here, JJ? Well, well I think the first thing you do, Carol, is kind of say to yourself, okay, do I think that these technology stocks, you know, that have been the leaders? Oh, looks like we had a little technical snafu, as they say. JJ Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist, TD Ameritrade. So hopefully maybe we can get him back here. Uh, but, you know, listen, Jason, the last four or five days, you know, going into last week where you saw a bunch of selling, uh, right? We went to pretty much a technical correction, yeah, 10% correction. And then we saw a rally this week. And, you know, what we were hearing is people saying, buy the dips. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it was those names that had really run up that now you could get them at certainly a cheaper price. Uh, it's an interesting environment. And I think as we talked with the Chipotle CEO, um, there's a lot of uncertainty still out there and there's a lot of things we still don't know. And so you're, you know, grabbing onto different metrics to f- try and figure out what's the market environment going to be. Uh, and uh, time will tell. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to hear from a, an interesting pair uh, after the close of trading. Uh, Oracle and Peloton, I believe, are yeah. both going to put out numbers. Uh, two very different companies, uh, to say the least. Uh, so let's actually ask 
J.J. Kinahan about that. He's back. J.J., I was just saying, as you were coming back on, Oracle and Peloton, an unlikely duo to hear from after the close of trading. What do each of those names tell us about and potentially tell us about where we are in this market and where we are in this sort of recovery-ish that we're in? Yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll start with Oracle because I think it tells us a little bit more, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. And, you know, first of all, it's kind of an interesting stock to me because it's not what I'll, you know, air quotes, sexy. It's yeah. just a very reliable company. But what I think it may say to us is what can they do in the cloud business? What does it tell us about some of the high flyers recently, uh, particularly maybe a Salesforce, et cetera, that they're going to compete against? And so... Um, I, I think that that one is going to be really interesting. Not only one of the things I like about Oracle is because they are such an established company, they can give you a great indication of not only what's going on in the U.S., but what's going on worldwide. So I also think that outside the initial numbers that come out, I find their conference to be one that's particularly interesting. Obviously, they've given up some of the gains they had earlier this morning. You know, the stock's down about a buck and a half from where it was earlier this, today. So It'll be interesting as it's lost momentum into the close to see how these numbers come out, what they have to say overall in terms of the worldwide economy, and are they seeing patches that are recovering faster than others. So from that point of view, I think it's really going to be interesting, and you may be able to glean some of that information, particularly for those investors who have multinational companies uh, on some of the countries they are doing well or doing poorly to use that for the information you have in investing in others. JJ, I really hope Larry Ellison isn't listening because you calling his company not sexy. I mean, have you seen his boat? Come on, man. Well, okay. The sailboats are. How's yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. Uh, so Peloton, talk to me briefly about that one. Well, Peloton, you know, again, I think this is one of those stocks that falls very much into the confusion trade. And what I yeah. mean by that is, are we going back to work? Aren't we going back to work? Uh, you know, pretty good price point on the equipment. Obviously, they had the nice day, you know, earlier this week with announcing some new equipment and some price cuts on what they have. Uh, great brand loyalty overall, but you have to say, is that going to be enough to carry them? Yeah. I think that this is one that, you know, I just talked about the press conference today for uh, Oracle. To me, this is one where we get the vote pretty quickly on the stock over the next couple of days because I really feel that this is the, the vote on whether we're going, how the market in the short term at least uses going back to work or not going back to work uh, over the next week or two. All right. What worries you, though? What keeps you up at night right now? Is it the election? <laughs> is it the virus? Is it, what is it? Just got about 45 well, seconds. Okay, well, I, I'll say this. The virus is always the overhanging story, yeah. and it's like a cloud that can release rain at any time, but it's kind of sunshiny when it's not over you. Um, but it, it, as I said, that's the number one worry, of course, Carol. The election, I don't think people will really start planning for for another few weeks. In the near term, I think it's valuations. And are we still too reliant on a few tech stocks? It will be nice if we can get some of these uh, consumer discretionary stocks going, et cetera. Financials still seem to be stuck in the mud. And that's kind of where we, we need to go because we know that we're, we're seeing struggles elsewhere also. So I really think financials are the key to us having the next leg up. I think we might go back up in the short term, test the highs we were at, you know, we'll test these lows again. And as we head to October, we really range bound. 
There we go. All right. We'll see what sort of vol the next few weeks bring. All right, JJ Kenahan, thank you so much. Always good to catch up with you. You, of course, are the chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. Joining us on the phone from Chicago. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.